Well, listen, we, are, uh, we have made it to the final chapter of Galatians. Hopefully you're excited because you just loved it, not excited because it's almost over. But either way, I'll take excitement. Hallelujah. But Galatians 6, we're going to start that this week and then next week be finishing up uh, this chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you can be turning there. Uh, it's been an exciting study. We've been learning about how uh, we've been justified by faith. And Paul was explaining to the church there in Galatia that, uh, that you know, we don't have to create any more rules. There's no man-made religion. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right and holy. It's all by the blood of Jesus and what He had already done. Amen? And so as we get to chapter 6, it gets exciting. He's now getting into the practical stages. Because we've been justified by faith, because we've been washed by the blood, because we're a part of the church and we're a part of the body of Christ, now there's some things that our lives need to do in order to relay that or to reflect that change. Everybody understand? How many of you know that Christians are supposed to look different than the world? If we claim to be a part of the body of Christ, I'm not saying we're better than anyone, we're holier than thou or anything like that, but our lives need to look different. There needs to be a definitive difference in the way that we approach our lives, the way that we live, the way that we treat people, the way that we enter into relationships, even the way that we work, I believe, the way that we go to our jobs and the way we do things should look different than everyone else. Does does this make sense? So Paul in this chapter is going to start getting into what it looks like. And I guess what? In typical Paul fashion, it's not going to be easy for us sometimes to, to stomach some of what he's going to tell us. It's, some of it's going to be kind of difficult. Some of it's going to be a challenge, but it's words that we need to hear. So let's get into it. If we'll start with verse 1, he begins to talk. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Everybody say gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So let's pause right here. A very important um, duty that he's telling us about right there. Did you notice that? He is saying, if someone's caught in the sin, we have a duty. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to restore that person. How many of you want to admit, you don't have to, don't raise your hand or anything, because I'll be willing to admit it, I'm sure you will, but you know, let's be honest. In 2023, within the church and our society, I don't think we have this quite nailed down. (laughs) Because it seems like in our society, if a brother messes up, or a sister messes up, it seems like our first, you know, nuance is to kind of kick them while they're down. Some of y'all saying, don't put that on me. I'm not saying everyone in here does this, okay? But, But I'm saying in general, I think if we're being fair, we're in a society where if somebody messes up, man, we just can't wait to jump on it. Oh, did you hear about? Oh, did you see that? My goodness, you let a brother or sister's, you know, face show up in a mugshot and see how many people share it. Some of y'all looking like, you know you would. You don't want everybody to know, I don't believe this. You know, I get, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to say I believe it's important to point out false teaching and it's important to protect people from false teachers and all that stuff. So I'm not saying it's wrong to call out someone in the body of Christ who may be putting out and portraying false doctrine. But man, we, we, we get so wrapped up and if a TV preacher falls, my goodness, we love to jump on it and make documentaries and watch it and talk about it and share that around and gossip about that. That doesn't have anything to do with what Paul's saying here, does it? We have a duty that if someone falls, and a brother falls, a sister falls, someone who's in the faith has an issue and they slip and they fall, we have a duty, and our duty is to help restore them back to the faith. Does everybody understand that? That's a heavy responsibility. Notice it's it's not a suggestion. It's not something we ought to do to feel good. It's what we're supposed to do. Is everybody with me? If you are, say yeah. Listen, there's a Greek word that I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of, but it's it's katarzito or katartizo is what it is. That's what the word in the Greek says right here. And you know what it literally means? It means it's a body part out of socket. Does that make sense? 
So let's say if my shoulder were to come out of socket, I watch football or, or MMA or something like that, and, and usually from time to time a bad injury happens, you see somebody, a football player, get hit, and all of a sudden the shoulder kind of goes limp, and they run over to the sidelines with it kind of dangling, and somebody's over there, and they pop it back in, and they try to go back in and play. You ever seen that before? That's literally what that word means in the Greek. In this trans- When he's talking about someone caught in a sin, and he's talking about restore, You know, Paul would say in other scripture that we as a church are the body of Christ. Does that make sense? We all have a part. Some of us are arms and some are legs and some of us may be feet or uh, I may be the armpit. I don't know, but we're all the body of Christ. And so as a body of Christ, if someone falls and slips, it's like one of our body parts is out of socket. It's trying to separate. Now, let's be real. If you separated your shoulder right now tonight, I'm pretty sure most of you, even though the pain may be severe enough for you to say some crazy stuff, but I don't think your first, you know, realm of action would be just cut, cut off the arm, just let it go. Right? What would we want to do? Let's get it back in place. Let's heal. Let's move on about our business. Is everybody with me? Am I making sense so far? So if someone falls, we our first you know, scope of action just said, yeah, I knew they wasn't going to make it. Let's kick them out of here, get rid of that part, and move on. No, we're supposed to restore them back to the faith. Does this make sense? Let's go a little bit farther. It's referencing someone that is caught in a sin. So I want to make sure this is clear here. You may think I'm really getting into the, into the granular stuff here, but that's what Bible study is for, and that's why I like Wednesday. Let's get a little bit granular. Notice he says, if someone is caught in a sin, I think it's important for us to break down and really dig deep and see what Paul said. Can I differentiate something for you? There is a difference in being caught in a sin that he's talking about here, and then someone who has contrived or deliberately lived in sin. Does this make sense? That is why, again, I'm not going to pick on anyone or any, I know people like to say no sin's any bigger than the other, and I believe in the eyes of the Lord that's true, and I believe every sin that you have, the Lord has grace enough to forgive you. If you repent of that sin and you turn away from the thing, the blood of Jesus can cover you and wash you clean, and you can be restored, and you can be a part of the body of Christ. Amen? How many of you are thankful for that? No matter of all the bad things I've done, I believe the blood of Jesus has been good enough to cover those things because I've repented. But I think you need to understand something because this is a popular question that people like to ask and people throw up in our faces sometimes. Why is it that you harp on certain sins more than you do others if no sin is greater than others? Because I'll be honest, I think what we're saying is maybe not harp on a sin, but there are certain sins that people are choosing to live a lifestyle of. Does this make sense? So that's why if you're going to, you know, be proud of your sin and you're going to proclaim that that's who you are and this is your lifestyle, then yes, you have contrived or deliberately chosen to be a part of a sinful lifestyle that isn't just being caught up in a sin. Does this make sense? There's a certain level of if you have chosen and you're deliberately staying there when you know that the convicting power of God has told you that's not where you need to be, and even though you know it's not what you're supposed to, you're still choosing to let that become your identity, then it's going to be hard for a brother or sister. They're not really going to be able to restore you to the body. You're going to have to have a complete conviction of the Holy Spirit to help you. Does that make sense? What we're talking about here, though, is he's saying brothers and sisters. That means people that are in the faith. And again, yeah, no sin is greater than the other. But all of us at some point can be uh, apt to be caught and tripped up by a temptation. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about here. I'm not telling you that's okay. Don't get caught in a temptation. Oh, it's fine. And just keep on getting caught in a temptation. But when you get caught and something happens and something sort of, you, you, you have that weak moment and the enemy uses it and is able to get a foot in the door, and that temptation comes, and you kind of fall into it, and you find yourself messing up, that's when your brothers and sisters in Christ don't need to point the finger and don't need to leave you there. We need to reach down with a helping hand ready to lift you up and say, oh, no, 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 this may be a slip-up, but this isn't the end. We're going to get back up, we're going to clean ourselves off, and we're going to keep moving forward in the destiny we have with Jesus. Is this okay? He's referencing someone that's caught up in a sin. There's a difference thing. So understand that we have a duty if we see someone who's caught up in sin. And I want you to understand, though, the duty has to be completed. Notice the adverb. You have to restore that person. I had you say it. What did we say? 
gently, gently. Listen, and I know I can go both sides. I know that the church a lot of times gets a lot of things thrown at it just as an excuse because people are convicted. Does that make sense? I think a lot of people like to take liberties and like to cast, you know, stereotypes on the church. But let me be real. I've been around the church long enough. And again, not all seasons as a church. I'm talking about the body of Christ. People within the name of the body of Christ have been guilty of really doing well of preaching the hellfire, brimstone, and wrath at people. There's a time and there's a place and a season for everything. I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not one of these trying to say we gotta not got to go easy on the gospel. But there's a lot of times we've seen people in sin and instead of trying to help them up, we just try to pile on. Does this make sense? If you fall down, I don't need to come up to you and say, hey, look, you fell down. Look, everybody, they're falling down. Look at you all down there. I bet you don't like that, do you? Nobody wants that to happen. Can we be real? All we're doing there is putting more shame and embarrassment on the issue. Does this make sense? Paul's saying, listen, you need to be gentle and you need to be compassionate and you need to sympathize with those people. Listen, we lose a lot of effectiveness because of our attitude of wrath and passion. Yeah, I'll say passion. We love to just say, but it's because we mean it so we, you need to stop that. You know, I've talked to, over the course of my ministry, I've dealt many years, as you know, in youth ministry, and I dealt with parents who, you know, they mean well, but sometimes they, the passion and the wrath came out toward their kids and everything they were saying, even though that what they were saying was truth, the message wasn't communicated or taken because of the way it came out. Does that make sense? Listen, I'm a parent. I, even non-spiritual way, I'm just talking in general. There's sometimes I get upset and I start speaking passionately to my kids. They may get scared, but sometimes it doesn't go as well as if I would just, you know, calmly communicate it to them. Is this okay? That's what Paul's saying here. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the wrath, and we may be right, but because we're trying to be wrathful and vengeful, Paul's saying, listen, you could be a lot more effective if you will use meekness, and if you will be calm, and if you will be tender. Because guess what that communicates? That communicates that you actually do care about someone. It actually shows that you're sincere in your affection. It's okay? So when someone does wrong to you in the church and has fallen, no, we don't need to go to social media and start bashing them. We don't need to start calling our friends and say, you will never believe what so-and-so said. I tell you what, I, can't, I just don't know why. None of those things are handling anything with any kind of tenderness. All those things are being messy. And the Lord won't bless a mess. That's not in Scripture, that's just PB work. But I mean, He won't bless a mess. Everything has to be in order, right? And that means in everything we do. So be compassionate, be tender, be gentle as we restore people to one another. Let me give you one more reason, though, in this verse. There's a reason why He's saying this, and it's very important. What does the last line says? Not only do you need to restore that person gently, but you need to watch yourself, or what? You know why it's important for you to treat people with compassion and with gentleness? And here, I don't mean this to, to cause any kind of stirs, but it may. I don't care who you are. in Every single one of us, me sitting here speaking to you on this stage as, with pastor as a title, can I just be real? There is not a single one of us in this room that is immune to falling to temptation. Does that make sense? I didn't tell you it's okay for you to go sin every day. Don't go take that and stretch my words. What I said, though, is there's not a single one of us who is above reproach when it comes to temptation. If I don't do what I'm supposed to and I don't listen to the Lord, guess what? I allow the enemy to come in and start tempting me with stuff just because I'm speaking to you today. Does that mean that I can't fall and do something crazy next week if I allow the enemy a foothold? Is this okay? That's what Paul's saying. Listen. You better be careful how you're treating your brothers and sisters because guess what? You, everything may be good right now. You're above approach. Man, you go to every Bible study. Man, the Lord's moving and you just bounce around and the Spirit's flowing. But guess what? You go through a hard season next week and the enemy start getting in your mind and that's going to be you that you're going to wonder why everybody's looking at. It's tough teaching, isn't it? So if there's a situation where I may need my brothers and sisters to come put their arms around me and treat me with compassion, I better be sure that I'm giving that same sort of care to them. 
Because I've seen it. Some of the ones who become the most wrathful and vengeful and think that they're looking down on someone else, the Bible says it's a principle. Pride becomes before what? The fall. They're the very people who will find themselves succumbing to temptation themselves and find themselves in a situation where they're looking for the same help that they were unwilling to give. Does this, this make sense? If it does, say yeah. None of us are immune to that. So Paul's giving us right away in verse 1, listen, you see someone call, you need to restore them. You need to go to them, talk to them, encourage them, put your arm around them, give them compassion, let them know that it's okay, that their world didn't end, that the Lord didn't forsake them just because they found themselves in a bad situation. But you encourage them, you love them, and you allow the Holy Spirit to convict them, and you help restore them back to where they need to be. Along with that goes verse 2, right after it. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So we need to sympathize with other people. And again, I'm, I'm, hopefully you're, I'm not talking to anybody that deals with this. I mean, there have been times, I've, I've been transparent before probably in this study, but I'll be transparent. There have been times in my life where just kind of the way that I grew up and you know, I didn't grow up in one of these just rampant sinful lifestyles like a lot of people did. I've grown up and been in the church all my life. I'm not saying that I was always right all of that time, but I've grown up around the church and there's a lot of things I didn't do. And, and because of, of that, you know, the enemy really tried to burden me with a religious spirit at times. There are times where I saw people that, man, y'all know better. I don't know why y'all can't get right. And guess what? When that spirit starts to arise, it can be easy to point the fingers and look at what everybody else is doing. Does this make sense? And as a result, when you see other people struggling, there's a mindset that the enemy will allow to come up in your mind. Well, they made their bed. They're going to have to lay in it. Listen, that is a principle, and there have been times when that, that may be a good you know, attitude to have. But I want you to understand what the Lord wants us to have as, as the body of Christ. He wants us to help one another along. Does this make sense? We weren't meant to do this thing alone. That's why he put us together in a body. We wasn't just so you could come and sit here and, and, and enjoy the chairs and the show. It's for us to grow together, to connect with one another. So you have people who can help you carry your burdens and for you to also help carry other people's burdens. Does this make sense? If you're going through it, it's not just for me to say, well, best of luck to you. It's for me to see how I can encourage you. How can I support you? How can I lift you up and help bear that weight on my back too? Is this Okay. And in this way, when we're doing this, what are we doing? We're fulfilling the law of Christ. He's been talking in this whole book about how the law has been fulfilled with Jesus. So what is this law of Christ? Well, John 13, 34, Jesus said, a new command I give you. What did he say? Love one another as I've loved you. So you must love one another. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an offer. It's not something we probably would need to do and it'd be a good idea. He said, if you're going to follow me, you have to love other people as I've loved you. Does that make sense? Jesus was able, well, was willing to carry my burdens. He literally carried the punishment of my sin up to Calvary. I didn't deserve that, but he did it. Amen. And I'm glad he did. If he was willing to do that, then I need to be willing to get down in the trenches with my brothers and sisters who may be enduring, and I need to encourage them and help them along. Amen? It's so easy. And again, I understand it's so easy for me. That's how I can say it. This isn't me pointing the fingers. But it's so easy for us to get so wrapped up and caught up in our own things that we, we, we just lose sight of the people around us. Paul's saying, don't do that. You've got to carry one another's burdens. John 15, 12, and 13, Jesus said this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Sometimes we look at the literal aspect of Jesus laying down his life, and we look at the literal aspect of us dying for someone. Will we be willing to take a bullet for someone? I mean... It's, it's good to talk and conjecture about that, but I kind of worry. I don't, I'm not too worried about people taking a bullet for someone, but they won't even take time to talk to somebody. <laughs> we don't even take time to check on people. Just, and again, I've been guilty. That's, this isn't me pointing the fingers. Are we willing to lay down our life for those people by just giving up some of our time and our energy to try to connect with them? Is this okay? Go to verse 3. So then he says this, this is important. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, 
They what? Deceive themselves. In a social media-driven society, the I society, how hard is it for people to, to not think they're something when they're not? We're in the society where everybody thinks there's something. Everybody's going to tell you there's something. And again, I'm not trying to dash and say that none of you are anything or not. not but, but you know what I'm talking about. We're in a society where everybody wants to be special. I saw a quote from uh, Dawn Staley on social media going around. Dawn Staley's the head women's basketball coach at South Carolina who's won multiple national championships. And even she kind of put this out there and said... Uh, Talking about, you know, athletes in the next generation. I think it applies to a lot of us in this generation. She said, there's a lot of people who want pro-level attention, but they don't even have an amateur level work ethic. Everybody wants the attention and the applause and the stars of, uh, or the the appeal of being like this great star with everything. And we don't want to really do anything to earn it or develop it or to work at it. Does that make sense? Well, I think sometimes in the body of Christ, just because we've been saved, we get to levels where some of us think we get to a place where we're okay, we're good, we've arrived. We think that we're something because we've achieved. We've, the Lord is, I've seen people who the Lord has done great, miraculous works in their lives, and it's incredible to see people who are transformed. But listen, we can get to a point where we get to a certain level where we're not what we used to be, thank the Lord, and because we're not what we used to be, we start feeling good about ourselves. Yeah, look what I did. Got to be really careful. There's a word for it. That's a word that a lot of people love to throw and hurl at the church. You know what it's called? Bigotry. Bigotry is when we seem to forget who we are and who God, in relation to who God is. Does that make sense? It's when we forget who we are in relation to God is, and we sort of think that we're more than, than God. Really, none of us are anything more than just sinners who've been saved by grace and have been placed on the rock and are, and are cleaned by His grace. Amen? But it is, it is incredible. And we can, I'm going to show you some examples in the Bible of how this attitude kind of hit different people. And we as the church today are not immune. We sort of think because maybe we've been around for a little bit or because we've accomplished this or we've seen this happen or we've experienced the Spirit at this level that we think that we're kind of above other people. None of that is true. Let me show you a couple examples. And I didn't give them the Scripture. You can write it down and look at it. I want to kind of walk through it. It's kind of not necessarily a story we hear a whole lot, but in Numbers chapter 11... Uh, and again, to be honest, Numbers is one of those books that has a lot of those things that not a lot of people are just ready to read. So, uh, But tucked away in Numbers amidst all the numbers and all the listing of all these people and all the stuff that, you know, it's in the Bible, but it's kind of hard for us to digest. There's this account of when Moses was getting ready, he was leading the, the children of Israel. And, and we know that the children of Israel in that time, they were getting hungry. They were kind of in this desert for all this time, and they were even complaining, wishing they could go back to slavery where they were because they have something to eat. And so the Lord had, you know, given them supernaturally manna, just this seed that fell that they were able to make bread with. I mean, they didn't have to do anything, it just appeared. But as you know, the good old children of Israel, the supernatural provision of the Lord wasn't good enough. Anybody ever been there? Nobody wants to admit that, but there are times when the Lord's providing and you start complaining about the providing. You don't think you're there? Just think about that next time you start complaining at work. Anyway, I'll move on. Y'all know y'all have been there. I'm like, ah, I can't believe this is happening. And then the Lord's like, well, I mean, aren't you, you bet you're glad on payday, aren't you? Okay, Lord, you're right, you're right. Thank you. You know, it's easy to get into, you know, and so they start complaining and saying, we want meat to eat. And so Numbers 11, verse 18, I'm going to read this to you real quick. It says this, God's speaking to Moses. He says, tell the people to consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. So now the Lord's going to give you meat and you're going to eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Don't you just love the Lord? He said, oh yeah, you want to eat meat? I'm going to give you meat. You're going to eat so much meat. that it, here, yeah. This is the God I love right here. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? 
But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I'm going to give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? And the Lord answered, hey, is the, arm, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you're going to see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So in verse 24, it says this. So Moses went out and he told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. And then the Lord came down in the cloud, isn't this awesome, and spoke with him. And he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and he put it on the 70 elders. So you know, Moses had been in this moment where he would go and the cloud of the Lord would rest upon him and he got to see the glory of God. And so all the elders are there and it says that Moses took that Spirit and so now they're getting to experience the glory and the presence of God like Moses did. Isn't that awesome? And notice what happened. When the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do so again. However, this is the part I want to get to if you're wondering. Two men whose names were Ildad and Medad. Those are great names. Anyway, they had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they didn't go out to the tent. Isn't this the cool the way the Lord works? They, they were supposed to go, but they didn't even go. Nevertheless, God's Spirit that had rested on them showed up on them while they were still at the camp. They didn't go to the tent, but the Spirit rested on them, and they started prophesying in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, because this wasn't normal. Hey, Moses, Eldad and Medad, they're all prophesying in the camp. We just thought you'd want to know. Now, notice this. This is the key. Joshua, the son of Nun. Everybody remembers Joshua, right? Joshua's the one that's going to go and take over when Moses died. Joshua's the one who went and led the people around Jericho and the walls fell down. And even before then, they walked across the Jordan River and it was all dry. That Joshua, y'all remember that Joshua? A man of mighty faith, a good man who followed the Lord, but notice what he said. In a moment of weakness, even Joshua was guilty of starting to think a little bit more of himself. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' age since youth, he spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Joshua's thinking, who are these two guys to be prophesying in the camp? And so notice what Moses said in verse 29. He replied and said, are you jealous for my sake? I wish all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on all of them. Now, do you notice that attitude again? We don't preach this part of Joshua a lot. and I'm, We love to preach the Joshua again that took over and had the faith and said, from this day I will serve the Lord. Amen? But what about the Joshua who felt that just because he had been the aide and maybe he realized and knew that he was being raised up to be the next in line, he thought that you know nobody else should be doing everything of the Lord. And if we're being honest, is that kind of a, an attitude that can creep into the church? Can creep within the body of Christ? We begin to see other people moving in their gifts and moving, and it's easy for us sometimes to think, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. Uh-uh. I don't think that don't sit right with me. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. You should... Moses is saying, no, no, don't be jealous. The Spirit of the Lord is moving. You don't get to dictate who the Lord chooses. Amen? You don't get to dictate who the Lord decides to bless. We don't get to dictate who the Lord decides to move through and to use in certain situations. It may look different than you like. It may sound different than you like. But at the end of the day, that's not our choice. Does this make sense? And so that's the part that Paul's saying. That's an example of someone thinking they were something when they were not. I'll give you a few other quick examples. I won't read through them as long as that one, but let me give you a couple of other quick examples. Remember in John 4, Jesus goes and sees a woman at the well. The woman was a Samaritan woman, and Jesus spoke to her and prophesied to her, or gave a word of knowledge and said, hey, I know that you know, you've been married this many times, and you're living with somebody that's not even your, your husband now and all these things, but if you'll, if you'll trust me and you'll believe in me and you'll tell people about me I'm going to give you water that'll never run dry it's everlasting water it's the water of life amen but guess what the disciples said when they saw him with the woman at the well they didn't say oh father we are rejoicing and so glad that that woman has changed and you changed your life they said no what were you doing talking to her 
Jesus. We should have been here. We could have been your security. We could have kept her away. Bigotry. Is this making sense? Someone thinking there's something they're not. Look, the Pharisees were pros at this. They were incredible at it. One specific story in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath. You know the story where he made the clay and he put it in his eyes and the man washes and he's healed and it's an incredible testimony of God's power and everybody should be excited. This man literally couldn't see and now he could see. The whole town should have been rejoicing at the power of Jesus. But no, he did it on a Sunday and so the people cast him, literally kick him out of the church. No, it didn't look the way that we needed to. You get out of here. Thought they were something they were not. Luke chapter 9, real quickly, Jesus is leading up to the time where he's going to go to Jerusalem, leading up to the time of Passover, leading up to the time where he's going to go to the cross and make that ultimate sacrifice. He goes through a village full of Samaritans, and he wanted to minister to them while he's on his way, but guess what the Samaritans did? Nope, you're a Jew, you're out of here. And guess what the disciples said? Jesus, can we rain down fire and burn them alive? How dare they reject our Savior? And what did Jesus say? <laughs> Y'all crazy. No. Just, they rejected me, but we're not here to destroy lives. We're here to save them. That's what He said. And some of y'all think that that's funny, but how many times within the body of Christ do we see evil? And, and, and I'm not saying that we need to... When, when I say this, I'm not talking about accept sin and glorify sin, but we are to love sinners. We are to make sure that we always love them. And you can love them without you know, admitting whatever they're doing is right. It's okay to call sin, sin. And it's also okay to love people who are in sin. Does this make sense? For some reason, we have felt that those things are mutually exclusive and they're not. Even if they reject, we're still to love them, we're to pray for them, for the Holy Spirit to convict them and to show them love because there will come a moment where we have, I believe the Holy Spirit will convict those people who are lost. The whole story of Saul, who's writing Galatians, ironically, before he became Paul, was Saul. And his whole life was in the idea of, because these people are following Christ, we must kill them because he wasn't right. That was bigotry. Lastly, early Christians in Acts 11... Peter, of all people, who Paul, as we've said in this book, if you've been with us in this study, who Paul had some issues with. They had some words. They had to settle some things. But even Peter afterwards, once he finally came into a realization that the Gentiles were saved, he started accepting Gentiles, the non-circumcised. And he would hang out with them and eat meals with them and spend time with them. And there were some early Christians that came to him and said, what are you doing, Paul? You're crazy. Why are you letting them in our club? or I said Paul, they were saying that to Peter. And Peter said, well, they're saved. The same Jesus that redeemed me has redeemed them. Amen? You're probably thinking, PB, you've just gone on and on about this. Well, listen, it's real easy for those of us who are in the body of Christ and we've seen a, a, get to a point where the Lord has established and set us to start to look down on the people who are at a place where we used to be. It is real easy sometimes for to forget where we were. Every single one of us have been there. Don't let the fact that you have become changed and you've become established, don't let the enemy get into your mind and then convince you that it's by your own good and your own merit and you can look down on those people who are where we used to be. Does this make sense? All right, let's move to verse 4 quickly. He goes to this, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one, in verse 5, should carry their own load. If I say our own load. So let me explain and teach right here, because if you're like me, when I first read that verse, it almost... Took, took, takes me back, because when I first read it, why are we talking about taking pride in ourselves? Isn't that the opposite of what we're supposed to do? So let me explain what he's saying here, okay? First of all, we need to test our actions. If we're going to look at other people and see what they're doing, and we see that they're stumbling, before we get so caught up in what everybody around us is doing, you need to check yourself, right? 
A famous movie line that, that, that I've heard and, and say and repeat, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Anyone ever heard that before? It's kind of the idea of making sure that if before I start looking at what everybody else is doing, I better start testing and make sure that my life is aligning to the same standards I'm holding everybody else to. It's important. Before I start, yeah, i got to worry about myself. When we test our actions and we approve ourselves to God, and when we mean by that, by our sincerity and uprightness towards Him. In other words, when we do everything that we can do, don't read this and misinterpret this as saying, as me telling you that you can earn God's approval. He's all, he loved us before we were even formed in our mother's womb. Amen? I believe that. I'm not talking about earning anything, but I'm saying when we are sincere and we do everything we can to be pleasing to His will and to align our lives with what His will for our life is, when we do that, we can expect to have comfort and peace in our own souls. Why? Because we have the testimony of our own consciousness toward us. Let me explain it in another way, because this can get kind of wordy, I know. But I talked about it earlier. We're, we're kind of in this me society that's all social media driven, and everybody's about how many likes I can get, how many shares I can get, how much attention I can get upon myself, right? What has that created? Probably the greatest negative effect that this generation has had is that almost 100% of our self-worth of, of a generation, you know, probably from my age down, Nearly 100% of their approval and the way they judge themselves is based on other people's opinions. It's never enough on if I've done all I can do and I'm pleased with what I have done. It's all about I need the affirmation of someone else by clicking a like or by laughing or by giving me or telling me a good job or saying something good. I need someone else to tell me that I'm good enough. Right? And what happens when that becomes your lifestyle? There's a reason why statistics show it. You start talking to kids. I talk to kids every single day. What do they say? Self-esteem is probably the, at the lowest it has ever been among current college and youth generations. Self-esteem. They just feel terrible about themselves. They don't know why. Because not enough other people have told them that they're doing good enough. This makes sense. I dare say that there are adults sitting in this room that may have, the, the enemy may be battling with you. And it could be because of this situation. Oh, I'm just not good enough. Why? Because not enough other people have given me affirmation. Or I start looking around and comparing myself to what other people have and what other people are doing. And I'm just not matching up. And there's no way that I'm good enough. And, I'm, I, I, I'm, and you're defeated. Paul's saying, test your own actions. Because guess what? I don't care if no one in this church pats you on the back or gives you a hug or affirms you and says great job or maybe even looks at you. And again, I hope that all those things happen. In a loving body, those things happen, right? We just talked about it. But even if they don't, if I know that I'm doing everything I can to please the Lord and I'm following His will for my life and I'm giving everything I have to Him and I'm spending time with Him and I'm allowing His Word to soak in and pour into my life and I spend time talking to Him and I hear His voice speaking to my heart and I know that I'm bearing fruit because the life that I'm living and the, the things that He's called me to do, I'm doing. Guess what? It doesn't matter what anyone else says or does. I'm still going to be okay because I'm pleasing the audience of one. That's what Paul means by this. Does that make sense? He's saying, test your actions. Guess what? If you're not doing those things, then yeah, you're going to probably fail and feel like you're doing bad. But guess what? You, you don't have to worry about earning everyone else's approval if you worry about my approval. Is this okay? I don't know who I'm talking to. I feel the Holy Spirit check me right there. Somebody came into this room today, and that was something that you've been battling this week. You've even asked, God, does anyone even notice? God, does anybody even know I'm here? I'm here to tell you, God has noticed, and He's seen every prayer you've prayed, and He's seen every tear that you've shed, and He wants me to tell you right now that He loves you, and He's not done with you. I don't know who needed to receive that, but receive it right now. We test our actions and we approve ourselves to God as to our sincerity and our uprightness toward Him. We can expect to have comfort and peace. If the Lord has you in a, or if you feel like you're in a season where the enemy has you tormented and has you in a season of turmoil, I'm here to tell you, if you'll just give yourself to God and focus on you doing His will, you'll have peace in your soul. 
Too many people are putting value in the opinions of others, whether it's others' good opinion of us, and that's what it is. We just want people to like us. It's natural. We all really ought to admit it. Some people are like, well, I don't really care that much. No, we all deep down inside, we want people to like us. I'm not telling you that's even wrong. I think it's kind of a natural thing. The problem is, is when we become too focused on it, right? We become too focused on it. Another problem, though, is sometimes we just like other people's opinions because we feel like we need to gain and sway those opinions. Some people just have a complex where they just need to have a lot of people on their side. Y'all know who I'm talking about or what I'm talking about? Some people just have to have a posse. I have to have a lot of people on my side to affirm that, that I'm right. And so they're going to do everything they can to smooth and get everybody. You know, that's how false teachers operate. They can get a lot of people on their side to believe what they're believing. But I'm here to tell you, don't worry about other people's opinions so much that you lose track of the Lord. But notice what else he says. Once you test your actions, you can take pride in yourselves alone without comparing to anybody else, for each one should carry their own load. Now listen, again, when you just read this, we just read him say that we should bear one another's burdens, right? We should carry everyone else's burdens. So some people, if you again read this, can think, well, Paul's starting to contradict himself. Now he says we have to carry our own load. Let me explain what he means. We all are, are, are have a duty on this earth to help each other along as we're walking on this earth. Amen? But there will all come a point where every single one of us are going to face the judgment seat of Christ. And every single one of us in this room will give account for our actions. I hate to say it, but, but when my time comes, Pastor Lott ain't going to come up there and talk for me. <laughs> Oh, he did such a great job helping me to all see that. None of that's going to matter at that point. My wife ain't going to be able to stand up there and say, oh, he was a really good husband. He took care of us. That's not going to matter at that point. My mom and dad aren't going to be able to stand up there and talk about what a good son I was. Does this make sense? My kids can't talk about what a good father I was. My students can't talk about what a good teacher I was. My bosses can't talk about what a good employee. Does all this make sense? I mean, I hope that all of those things would be true. I hope if you would ask any of those, you would have a good opinion of, they would have good opinions of me. I'd have my reference check would, would, you know, be good. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, none of that matters. It's going to be me and the Lord and what I did while I was on the serve. And I know it's a word, we've heard it spoken at this church a lot over the last little bit, so there better be an urgency about you. Not a, oh man, I can't wait till one day I'm going to get my act together. I can't wait till in a few years when things settle down, man, I'm really going to be able to dedicate and go after God. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised the next hour. The Lord could come back. I personally believe the Lord could come back before I finish this sermon right here tonight. You may have a different timeline, I don't know, but I personally believe the Lord can come back before I finish this tonight. I need to be about my Father's business every moment I have. The Lord is, is going to call and we're going to face that moment. So we have to bear our own burden. We have to give an account. So we need to be willing. If I'm going to have to give an account to Jesus then, I can't wait until then and worry about what I'm going to say. I better start holding myself accountable for what I'm doing right now so I'm prepared for that moment then. Is that all right? I mean, my goodness, I tell my students, if they had a test tomorrow, I hope you didn't wait till right now this hour to start studying. I hope you began preparing a few weeks ago. Right? Well, my goodness, if you know you're going to face the Lord in eternity, and again, I know that I'm not making this to be a scared thing. The Lord's blood's going to cover us and, and gives us grace, but, but we're still going to have to give account for what we've done. In that case, I better make sure that I'm doing all I can. We have to hold ourselves accountable now. And so how do we do that? Fulfill the law of Christ. And how do we do that? What he's already been talking about. Bearing one another's burdens. Loving one another. Being willing to get in the trenches and make sure that everyone we come in contact with knows the Lord and we're leading them to the Lord. Is this okay? Let's go to verse 6. Nevertheless, Paul says, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. 
I'll be weird. It gets kind of weird if I start preaching this, but it's in the Bible. We need to talk about it, okay? For a couple of things that this is important, that this establishes, Paul's saying, listen, understand that there is a gifting. There is a, there is a group called to be taught, and there's a group that is called to teach. Does that make sense? Again, don't mishear me. Did I just say, well, I'm in the gifting of the teacher right now. I'm speaking. That's one of the things God has called me to do. And I've been putting this position. So here tonight, I'm the one teaching. You're the one being taught. Does that mean that I never get taught? No, there are moments where I need to go and listen to someone in the gift of teaching and receive that. Does that make sense? But that the, uh, that the important thing is, is that sometimes people can get to this level. I mean, or get into this mindset. The enemy can start deceiving people when they start to gain knowledge and they start to hear from the Lord and they start to grow. And after so many times, there are people who literally the enemy will deceive and say, ah, you don't need to sit and listen to that anymore. You know enough. My goodness, if I ever get to a part where I know enough, then we've got an issue. I know some of you may see and say, man, that's crazy. I couldn't ever imagine. And I agree, maybe you've never reached that, but there are times where the enemy will try to tempt and have you believing that. Listen, there are times where the enemy will get into my mind and say, you don't need to listen to that person teach you. You don't need to listen to that person. There's nothing that you can gain from that person. That's, that's the wrong mindset. You're disqualifying the gift that God's wanting to use in someone. Does that make sense? Know that the one who's receiving instruction is, is worthy of, of acknowledgement. Teacher, and as a result of that gift, do understand there's a burden that people with a calling of teaching bear. We are called and we have to teach the Word. If I ever get up here and just simply teach you my opinions and my philosophies and my takes on things, then you leave here lost and not gaining anything. Maybe entertained if I told good jokes, but you wouldn't have anything that would help you, would you? No. Jesus said to preach the word. Paul exhorted people to preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. The third part of that, notice what it says, those who receive the instruction should share all good things with their what? Instructors. So we're going to pass the offering plate again. And No, I'm just joking, y'all. Lighten up, lighten up. But no, this is what it means, okay? Um, again, has the body of Christ sort of morphed this and taken advantage of this? Absolutely. But just because certain aspects have taken advantage of it, does it mean that someone who is in the office of a teacher, a pastor, someone who's leading, does not deserve to be taken care of? Absolutely not. There is a duty for us, who, the people who pour into us each and every week, we have a duty to make sure that they're taken care of so they can continue to pour into us. Does this make sense? So when I hear people ask and wonder, why do, you know, preachers make money? I mean, Paul's saying right here, someone who is giving instruction and you're receiving and it's helping you, guess what? They should, we should share our good things with them. So yes, that includes resources, amen? But it also includes encouragement. Good things doesn't always just mean resources. It means you need to encourage those people in the Lord who are pouring into you. Give them support. Be with them. Don't tear them down. Don't just you know, sit back and, and act like you're kind of phased out when they're giving you instruction. Be with them. Encourage them. Help them and love them. Is this okay? Four more verses. Let's move to verse 7. So now we get into some very common things. Familiar scriptures here as he finishes this section. He begins to tell them, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And again, I think it's sort of interesting, not trying to harp on this, not manipulating, not gaslighting or any of those sort of things, but notice it comes right after he's talking about how teachers need to be taken care of and you need to take care of the people who are pouring into you. You need to share what you have with them. But don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. Don't sit here and think that you can pretend and, and say, oh man, I'm with you. I'll let support them to their face and then stab them in the back. Don't say that, oh, I'm with you and then go over here and the first chance you get, start to browbeat over here. And Don't say, oh, I'm with you. I'll support you in public and like everything in public on social media. And then you're going in the back channels and complaining and tearing down. Does this make sense? 
Those things are, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. That's a mockery to, Lord, to the Lord. And anything that you reap, it's a, it's a law that's throughout the Bible, but it's pretty simple. It's whatever you're, you're going to reap, whatever it is that you're sowing. Notice what he says in the next verse. What, whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh, you're going to reap what? You keep on sowing those seeds of discord, trying to tear down people so that your kingdom can be built up. Tear down those people who are doing things and and try to make yourself look like you're a little bit more high and mighty. Guess what? You're going to reap some destruction in your life. Keep on sowing all the time and resources to the things of the world and the things of the flesh and see what happens. But if you sow to please the Spirit, guess what you're going to reap? Eternal life. You're going to reap those things of the Spirit. Whatever it is that you you sow, you're going to reap. Whatever seed you plant, that's what you're going to get. It's a simple principle. I mean, it may sound even like kids' church or something, but I mean, if I plant an orange seed, I'm going to harvest what? Yeah. If I plant tomatoes, what am I hoping to harvest? I mean, if my tomato plants start growing a watermelon, we're going to sort of wonder, right? Got a problem. So think about it. If you find that you're sort of reaping some things that are hard, you're reaping some things that are in the flesh, you're reaping some things. Think about what you've been sowing. Listen, if you complain all the time, I'm going to tell you what, complaining all the time is never going to end in you reaping a good life and good feelings. (laughs) You know what? The more misery and complaining that you sow, the more you're going to reap misery. It's just the fact of life. Even in the midst of hard times, though, if you start sowing good things, as you start speaking life, and you start saying, man, I am blessed. I am the head and not the tail. I'm, my cabinets may look a little bare right now, but harvest is coming. My, my bank account may look a little bare now, but I know that I'm going to continue to obey God and sow what I do have, and, and provision is coming. I may feel sick and down and out right now, but I'm not going to keep complaining about how bad I feel. I'm going to begin to speak life and healing over me and know that I'm going to get through this and guess what I'm going to reap healing and listen whatever the problems are in your life that you complain about I don't I don't I don't hear a lot of this so when I say this I always want to make clear I'm not telling you and trying to repeat things I've heard to you in this way but I've heard people at different churches at times say this, but if you come to church and all you see are the bad things and the negative things and all you can do is complain about how this didn't work and this didn't work and this didn't work but you're not sowing in energy and volunteering and helping and giving of your time and your resources to kind of help in some of these areas, you're not going to reap what you want to see. Oh, I knew it would get quiet there. I'm sorry. But you know, actionless chatter. That's one of my friends posted this week about that. We're really good at actionless chatter. We like to talk a lot without doing anything, Right? If we want to really see action happen, we want to see change happen, we have to begin to sow. We've got to begin to give things. And notice what it says in the midst of that. Verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good. Some of you in here, you've been sowing. And man, you've been sowing and sowing and sowing. You've been working. And I'm here to tell you, there's not a single one of us in here that, that work and we go from can to can to can, as they say, and we go and we're pouring all of our energy and time You're going to get tired. Amen? If you're not getting tired, you're not working hard. That's what I always heard. (laughs) Work till you get tired. Just work some more and you'll eventually realize and get there, right? No, in all seriousness, you you get tired, but but notice what he's saying. Don't get weary in doing good. What we mean by weary, sometimes we get so tired working and sowing and we don't see the harvest. Anybody like that? I'm no farmer by any means, but, you know, growing up, my parents did have a garden several years, and even when I was young, that was part of what we did as a family. My my, my parents got me out there, and I'd have to pull weeds and get my hands dirty, and but, you know, there was nothing worse than us going to work the garden as we did every afternoon, and there'd be nothing out there. I'm like, what are we doing? I mean, again, like seven, but still, I mean, what are we doing? 
Why are we pulling up these? What is this doing? This is just pulling grass. When are the, when are the watermelons coming? Where are the tomatoes? I don't see anything. And it seemed like you'd go out there and we'd work and get sweaty. And I had this complex. I know some of y'all are going to make fun of me. It's, but I had a complex when I was a kid that I hated like the feeling of dry dirt on my hands. So every, you know, 10 minutes I had to go wash my hands before I got them dirty again. I can't explain it. It was just a sensory thing. I don't know. I may have had a problem that they now diagnose that they didn't back then. I don't know, but I'm just kidding. But seriously, I had that deal, and so my parents would always mess with me. I have to go wash my hands before and got them dirty again. It wasn't that I hated the work per se, but I would get tired of working and not seeing anything. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Listen, you start walking in Christ. You start sowing good things. You start sowing financially. You start giving your time to the Lord. Listen, I've given time and energy in the ministry, and it felt like the more time and energy I spent and the longer I went at it, the less results I saw. Anybody ever been there before? I just wondered, when am I ever going to see the harvest? But notice what the promise is. At the proper time. Everybody say that. At the Can I encourage somebody again here today? Please heed the word of the Lord, not the word of PB. Hear the word of the Lord. Some of you are in here right now and you've been asking that question. When God, when God, when God. I'm here to tell you a prophetic word at the proper time. If you haven't seen it yet, it just simply means it's not been the proper time. Don't lose hope. You should be excited about it. I know you're you're wanting me to say today is that time. I'm sorry. Today may not be the proper time, but what I can promise you is there is a proper time. Amen? There came a proper time when the vegetables began to grow and I would get to go out there and pick them and I was excited. The proper time had come. If if they had come too early or I picked them too soon before the proper time, I wouldn't have enjoyed eating them. Does that make sense? But at the proper time, they're ready and you can enjoy it in its fullness. Listen, the Lord has a harvest for you. I don't know what that harvest looks like, what specifically you're looking like. Maybe it's some loved ones that you've been praying for and you've been waiting to come into the fold. I'm here to tell you there's coming a proper time. Be patient and just begin to praise for it now. Maybe it's finances. Go ahead, praise the Lord for what it is. Maybe it's provision and finances. Maybe it's opportunity. Maybe it's a ministry you know the Lord has called you to do and you just haven't seen that opportunity. Don't lose hope because there comes a proper time. We will reap a harvest, but the caveat is this. We cannot... If we give up... If we'd have given up work in the garden and just left the weeds out there and said, I guess nothing's ever going to come, then nothing would have ever came. The weeds would have come and destroyed what? Yeah. Does that make sense? Maybe simple, but that's what Paul's saying. Go to verse 10, finishing up here. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to who? Say it again loudly. Do good to all people. But I like this too. Especially to those who are belong to the family of the believers. So again, Paul's sort of surmising this section of this chapter by saying again, do good to all people. If they're a sinner, does that mean we treat them like garbage? No, we love them. We do good to everybody. But let's be real. Can we be real? Is that okay? We're a church family. We love everybody. We're a part of this. Can I say this right? I'm trying to think of how to say this right. But if things came into conflict, if it was, you know, this person needs this and a family member needs this, your immediate family member did this, is there going to be a preferential priority you're going to place on one or the other? Does that make sense? I mean, I I love all of you as my family. I'm going to be there for you. I'm your pastor. But if it was like split second, somebody was going into to, to a major situation, and then at the same time my son was going into a major situation, does this make sense? Okay, again, I want to be careful in how I say this. I don't want anybody to leave here and say, Pastor, don't care about me. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm, just, I'm trying to make a point. Y'all understand? There's just a, there's a natural priority that we place on our blood. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, as a family of believers, 
we're going to do good to everybody, but is there just a special preferential priority that we're going to place on people who are within our kingdom? Paul's establishing that here. Again, don't, don't leave here saying, PB said, we're better than y'all. No. We're to do good to everybody, but we especially need to make sure we're taking care of our family. Does that make sense? So that while we go and we evangelize and we're winning people to the lost, don't forget that there's people who may be struggling and going through it within our family here. Don't neglect them. Make sure that you're reaching out and you're taking care of them, that you're putting your arms around them, that you're leading them to where the Lord wants them to go. Is this okay? And he says to do this when? As we have opportunity. Now, when I just read that, I know that there's some of you in here, because I did this when I first read it too, you think, well, as I have opportunity, and we use that clause as kind of an escape. Well, as I have the opportunity, so we automatically say, well, I may not have the opportunity, so I'm just not going to help everybody all the time. How many of you, you, you got to do that? Don't, I won't do that. Don't raise your hand if you thought that. But some of you probably thought that, well, as I have... A... But I want you to read what he means. As we have the opportunity means that you have the opportunity right now, and it's limited. What did I just say? We are not promised tomorrow, are we? We're not promised another day. So every minute, every moment that we have on this earth that we're breathing, that we're walking, that we're talking, is the opportunity you have to help all people. Amen? So you need to do good to all people right now while you have the opportunity because there could come a moment where the Lord calls you home, you're not going to have that opportunity anymore. Make sure also that you're ready to improve every opportunity for it. But do understand that you should use godly wisdom and discretion. Do good to all people, but I don't believe the Bible says to allow people purposefully to take advantage of. Does that make sense? I guess in other words, this is what I mean. When I see somebody and they ask me if you know, they need some gas, and you know the Spirit gives me some discernment or some discretion, it's perfectly okay for me to bypass giving them the cash and just going and putting the gas in their car. Make sense? Someone says they're hungry. I've done this before. We've had people come in and they've asked that they're hungry. And I'm, you know, I want to help them. And sometimes the Holy Spirit checks me and says, yes, go and feed them. They may want money, but the Lord says go and feed them. Does that make sense? It's okay to use discretion and allow the Lord to give you wisdom. Do I think the Lord will bless you if you gave them the money? And, and I do think that there's a principle that if I give somebody something and I don't know and they go and they take advantage of it on their own time, that's between them and the Lord. It's left me. I believe that also, okay? But I don't want to get here and, and make you think I'm so super spiritual that I never use wisdom. I believe the Lord gives us wisdom and, and I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to us and gives us the discernment to know how to handle situations in a good way that help people. Do good to all people especially those who belong in the family of believers. Let's close out with this. So basically, for the end of chapter 5, through where we are so far, think about all these commands that Paul has given us. He told us to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. He told us to not become conceited and think that we're better than other people. He told us not to provoke one another. It's not our job to try to poke the bear and get other people upset with us. It's not our job to envy one another and wish that we had what somebody else had. He, he asks us to restore and tells us to restore our sinning brothers. He tells us to consider ourselves not above falling because every single one of us can fall to temptation in a certain situation. He tells us to bear one another's burdens, examine our own work, bear one's own responsibility, support the ministry, do not be deceived, don't grow weary in well-doing, and lastly, do good to all men. Will you stand with me tonight? We'll wrap up this book next week, but this is what I would encourage you to do is you'll just bow your heads with me as we close in a time of prayer. And again, I just want you to take a few moments here as we're finishing up, as we're getting ready to pray. I ask that you allow Holy Spirit to speak to you. Maybe there's already been something that He's pricked your heart with, maybe that has been said tonight. Maybe you hear, and as the Holy Spirit has prompted, maybe you hear, and you have struggled with just comparing yourself to other people. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to heal that in your heart tonight, and I want you to 
Allow him to be your sole resource tonight. Allow him to be the apple. Allow him to be the one audience that you live your life to please. Maybe you're here tonight and you say, Pastor Bradley, I've had moments where I've looked at other people and the enemy has sort of utilized some religious spirits. And there have been times I've looked down at other people instead of helping them up. And as we pray tonight, allow the Holy Spirit to heal that wound. Ask the Lord to forgive you of that. Allow Him to to restore your soul tonight. And maybe you're here and say, Pastor Bradley, I just want to take advantage of every opportunity I have. And as we're praying, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to begin to open your eyes to the opportunities that are around you every single day to be His hands and feet where He has planted you and where He has placed you. Father, I thank you so much for your word that you've given us tonight. Father, I praise you and thank you that you have bought us with your blood, that you've forgiven us, that you've made us a part of a family of believers. I thank you, God, that we're able to be a part of your kingdom. Father, I pray that you give us hearts of compassion. Father, I come against religious spirits. I come against spirits of conceit and arrogance Father, I just pray that we all carry the spirit of humility like Jesus. The spirit of servants, that when we see our brothers and sisters struggling along, that we're willing to reach down our hand and help them up to be support. Father, I pray, God, if there's anyone here that has allowed the enemy to give them and tempt them with spirits of comparison, Father, if there have been spirits of low self-esteem, Father, I come against them now in the name of Jesus. I proclaim that every person in this place know that you are their Father, that you've created them, that you've designed them, and that you love them. You have a destiny for them. You've given us all gifts and talents that you want us to use. So, Father, regardless of what the enemy may say and want them to believe, Father, they are not nothing. They are good enough because you have made them worthy. And I pray, Father, that they begin to go after you and your will, that they will silence the voices of other people in their lives, and they will listen to you. And Father, I pray that you help us to do good to all people. Help us to love everyone. Father, help us to love the sinner. Give us opportunities to be your hands and feet, to show love to those people who need it the most. And Father, as we do that, I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will convict and draw people unto you. Your word says that if we lift you up, all men will be drawn unto you. So, Father, we lift you up. Let you be elevated and lifted in our lives. We thank you and praise you for all that you're going to do in Jesus' name. And everybody in this place say, Amen and Amen. God bless you. I hope you have a great week.